0: Proverbs chapter three. It's hard to believe that it's been four weeks since we last opened the book of Proverbs together in this setting. We've been saying throughout our time together as we've looked at Proverbs that really this series and our study and our constant look at this book of wisdom is to show us and make us wise enough to know that we're not wise enough. We continually see wisdom unfolded for us, and it's to remind us that we have not yet arrived and to press us on in our continued walk after the Lord in our pursuit of wisdom. Since it's been just a little while since we've been together, I want to kind of refresh where we've been so far just at the outset. Solomon writing to his son Rehoboam starts off right away in chapter one by showing us why we need the Proverbs. He begins right off the bat telling us we need to know more, we need to be taught, we need to make better decisions, we must have wisdom. So what is wisdom? Wisdom in the context of Proverbs, as we have said, is the ability to make moral and ethical decisions that please God in any given situation. It's how we relate to God and others in God's world and the heart knowledge to take the right course of action in the countless decisions that we make every day. For believers, for those who have been saved through faith in Jesus, living wisely means doing the right things, because we're thinking and believing rightly. We're motivated and guided by the fear of the Lord, and that pushes us towards wisdom. We saw in chapter one that the fear of the Lord is where it all starts. The fear of the Lord is the foundation for wisdom, for knowledge, for understanding. We define that simply by saying that it's what we think of God. The fear of the Lord is what we think of God and our heart response to that thinking and then the resulting decisions that we make in life. So after laying that foundation, Solomon compares and contrasts the wise teaching of Rehoboam's father himself and his mother with the peer pressure toward a foolish life of rebellion against God's will. Then in the final section of chapter one, wisdom is pictured really inviting us, calling to us, saying, come, receive, you need, you need me. In chapter two, we're exhorted to treasure wisdom and as a result of the value that we place on wisdom to pursue after it with everything we have. And then it includes not only the fact that we should pursue it, but says if you pursue it, you will have it. If you find it, if you treasure it, if you search after it, you will have it. And those who search for it in the fear of the Lord will find it and be protected by it. Chapter three then begins to unfold the rewards of wisdom. The rewards of wisdom. We see directives for a life of wisdom in chapter three, but there's these accompanying motivations. There's rewards. Doing wise things, living wisely, results in reward and blessing. And seeing that is intended to woo us toward wisdom. To not only see the trajectory that wisdom would have us take, but to see the benefit, the blessing that's there. With wisdom, there is satisfaction, well-being, provision. Security, just to name some of the benefits. The central issue in the book of Proverbs as it's unfolding for us is simply this Will you choose God's will or your own way of thinking and doing? Will you trust God's inspired, sufficient, authoritative wisdom or your own intuition? your own fleshly, do best, my gut instinct, or God's wisdom that he lays out clearly for us in his word. As we turn our attention to verses 27 through 30 in Proverbs chapter three, that central question about whether we'll trust our own way of doing things or God's way is brought to bear on relationships. Wisdom applied to relationships. Our possession of wisdom, or conversely, our our lack of the possession of wisdom is demonstrated in our relationships. It's demonstrated in how we relate to other human beings. It's easy to think of wisdom as something that's individualistic. So from this isolated idea. The wise person is the one locked in a room, lots of books, stroking their chin, constantly meditating, thinking, but all by themselves. And whether or not they're wise is determined by how much they've thought, and whether they eventually get to thinking the right thoughts. But Proverbs actually lays out countless situations and says wisdom is knowledge, involves thinking, but how that knowledge then gets applied in everyday life. And throughout the Proverbs, relationships are shown to be a primary avenue by which your wisdom or lack of wisdom is demonstrated. It's not about what you think about God all by yourself. That's not the final measure of your wisdom. It's how you live out in accordance with that thought. And in particular, in our verses tonight, it shows how that's lived out in relationships. How that's lived out as we interact, as we come into contact with, others, other human beings throughout our lives. Proverbs correlates wisdom to knowledge and action, decisions, deeds, actions, doing because of what we're thinking, doing because this is the course of action that God has laid out and said, this is the best way, this is the wise way. And that wisdom's demonstrated in our relationships. This connection of wisdom to relationships has been hinted at a little bit already and then it's really unfolded plainly for us in our verses tonight. Chapter two, verse nine says that wisdom really allows us to discern righteousness, justice, and equity. And those are termi- that's terminology that it's relational. Equity, how we treat people, righteousness, justice, how we interact with others, the relational understanding. Chapter three, verses three and four say that the wise individual clings to godliness, god-likeness, in loving kindness or mercy and truthfulness. And that implies how we treat others. There's relational language there. The qualities in our life that reflect God in how we interact with one another. Are we kind, merciful, and truthful? There's some relational terminology there at the beginning of chapter three. And now the focus in verses 27 through 30 are actions, deeds, choices in the relationships that we find ourselves in in God's providence. I'm gonna read verses 27 through 30 of Proverbs chapter three. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. Do not contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. These verses present us situations, relational situations that are given to show us a wise course of action in those situations and then by extension whether we demonstrate whether we possess that wisdom by how we interact in these scenarios with other people. Just a few observations about how these four verses are laid out before we launch in to the study of the individual verses. Really you have four do nots. Do not, do not, do not, do not. Four prohibitions. And each one includes an an attendant circumstance. So we have Uh, circumstances that are a part of the prohibition that explain the situation in which the prohibition applies. They they give us a picture of the relational situations that are going on. The first two, verses 27 and 28, are connected. They involve sins of omission. That is, failing to do something we ought to do. And both of those verses involve people in need. And the second two, verses 29 and 30, they involve sins of commission, that is, doing something we ought not to do. And those specifically are related and they involve actions or sinful actions that are perpetrated against others that are harmful toward others. Terminology, we're, we were introduced to the others, the neighbor, in these four verses. And neighbor is not used in all four verses, but. We see individuals, verse 27, the individual are those to whom good is due. In verses 28, 29, it's translated neighbor, and then in verse 30, more general, just man. And so all of those aren't understood necessarily as isolated categories of human beings that you might interact with, and specific category that's really tightly defined. They're in parallel. The idea is others. So when you think neighbor, don't simply think the person who lives next door. And it's, just, it's so, we, we think neighborhood, our neighbors, those who live next door certainly includes them, but it's not limited to them. The, the idea of this term, it was contextually defined. Sometimes in the Proverbs, it means friend. Sometimes it means companion, but it's always contextually defined. Sometimes it's just more generic. Other, other person, fellow, another human being. That's the idea, it's, it's more generic than neighbor, and so it doesn't just mean the person next door. But if you think of neighbor in biblical language, most of your mind probably goes to Jesus' words in Luke 10, where he defines who our neighbor is and who is it. It's everyone. It's whoever you come into contact with. It's not just the people you live next door. It's not just the people in this room or in this church. It's not just the people that are in your family. So the idea here, when we hear neighbor, when we see the terms of those whom it's due, when we see the, the contending with a man without cause, we should just think of individuals that in God's providence, we come into contact with in our lives. That's kind of the the general understanding we wanna have of the relationships and the others that are being referred to in these verses. Your family, your church family, your coworkers, those in your neighborhood, and in our present world, your digital neighbors, those who you interact with online. I mean, I can't say it without laughing, your friends. Really, I mean Facebook friends. People you may never have met, but they're, they're your friends. Those are your neighbors. They are those who you have contact with in God's providence. There are, because of this general terminology, seemingly limitless applications to these verses. And as we study them, you're gonna be thinking of specific situations. And not every situation is addressed in these verses because they're Proverbs. But it's important that we we see that general terminology referred to, it's others. So to to guide our, our look at these four verses, we want to outline our time, our study tonight, around four prohibitions that shape wise interactions with others. Four prohibitions that shape wise interaction with others. Right off the bat, our first prohibition in verse 27 is, don't be stingy. Don't be stingy. Verse 21, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. The prohibited action here is withholding good. And the terminology there is general, it's good. It's the general term for good, things that are beneficial, things that are usable, helpful, pleasant things. General terminology. The the prohibition is against not doing good to somebody that you could do good to. That's why we say it's a sin of omission. It's something that you don't do that you ought to do. And so withholding good is withholding kind treatment of somebody, meeting needs, food, shelter, clothing, a helping hand. But because of the terminology of good, it would also apply to meeting spiritual needs would apply to withholding relational good in terms of being a friend, being an ear for somebody to talk to, giving wise counsel, bearing burdens. Who is this good withheld from? And a really interesting terminology, those to whom it is due. Literally it says, it reads, withholding good from its owners. Withholding good from its owners. And that has led some to try to kind of limit the verse and the terminology to those to whom a debt payment is due, a bill. Don't withhold good from those who you owe. In other words, pay your bills. Uh, I believe that's too limited. That's too limited a perspective. Look, Solomon could have used words for wages. He could have used words for laborers. And that's not what, that would certainly be included in this verse, but it's not limited to paying your bills. The reason why that's often thought to be the case here is because there is Old Testament provision and law that says, hey, when you hire somebody and you have their money, pay them at the day's end. Don't make them go home hungry and wait until the next day to collect what's due to them. And so that's often the illustration that's given. And again, that would be an application of these verses. But to withhold good is not limited here to withholding payment to somebody who's done their job and and needs to be paid. It's more general than that. It's not just wages. It is general good. It's important to remember here, and we'll come back to this later, God's law included the command to do good to everyone. Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law of God that would have informed Solomon says love your neighbor as yourself. And so generally withholding good has this more broad understanding of doing good to others. To whom is good due? Our neighbors. Who are our neighbors? Everyone God puts into contact with us. Similar terminology you might be thinking of Romans 13 which we went through not that long ago indicating that we owe love to one another and so similarly in that vein. Those to whom good is due is a general category not simply those who you owe money to. What is the attendant circumstance here? The circumstance in verse 27 is that you're able to meet the need. You're actually able to provide the good that's needed by this individual. That's what it says in the second part there. When it is in your power to do it. So the situation that's presented is you're withholding good from someone who needs the good that you're able to give and you have the ability to do it. So you are actively not engaging in something that you are perfectly equipped in the providence and sovereignty of God to meet the need. Now we're gonna take the first two prohibitions together and then come back and look at some implications. So I wanna to jump to the second one and then we'll circle back because they're so related. The second prohibition is don't be reluctant. If verse 27 is don't be stingy, verse 28 is don't be reluctant. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Here the implication, or what's implied, I should say, in the verse is that someone is in need, they're in contact with you, the need is known, and the prohibition is don't tell that person I'll take care of you tomorrow, when you can take care of it right then. It's a problem to say go and come back tomorrow because the attendant circumstances that are given here is that you have what they need right then. So you're saying I'll take care of you tomorrow when in fact you could meet their need right away when it's known. And so the issue is not inability. The the person portrayed here isn't somebody saying, come back tomorrow, I don't have it with me, I'm not able to meet your need, but I'd like to meet your need, that's not the scene. The scene is reluctance. I can meet your need right now, but go and come back tomorrow and then we'll talk. Then maybe I'll meet your need. It is one who's procrastinating in doing good. It's one who's deferring the good that could be done today and the indication is that it's deferred because they're likely not gonna do it tomorrow. The verse to be understood, why, why would somebody who has the ability to do it today not do it right then? The implication is because they don't really wanna do it. So go, come back tomorrow, take care of you then. I'm reluctant, I don't really wanna do this, I'm just gonna defer the good. If there was a genuine desire to do the good that the person has with them, they would do it. That's the scene. Somebody has it in their power. They have it with them, whatever this person needs. Obviously, they don't want to meet the need, or they would right then. So that's a little bit of the scene. If there was a genuine desire, you wouldn't tell your neighbor to go and come back. So these first two prohibitions are related, and I just want to tell you, to press into these verses a little bit, I mean, they they grabbed me by the collar this week, and I want to dive into this a little bit with you. It, if you've been tracking it all with me so far, what's coming is, you know what's coming. These verses are an absolute direct charge that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. that anything we can do to help others that are in need, we need to do it, and let's press into that just a little bit. First we wanna see that generosity is reflective of God himself. Numerous locations in the Proverbs indicate that wise people care for the needs of others. That's a reflection of the Lord. And it actually contrasts the wise with fools that neglect those needs. So we're automatically in the category of wise and foolish in how you respond to the needs, to the, to the good that you could do to your neighbors, to those around you. Proverbs 14, 21. He who despises his neighbor Sins. He who despises his neighbor's sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Proverbs 21:10: The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. Proverbs 21:10 says that the wicked person doesn't show mercy or kindness to his neighbor, that mercy is not found. In, in the eyes of the wicked, the neighbor has no favor, no mercy. The wicked fool is not interested in meeting the needs of those whom he can meet the needs of. He shows no mercy. So Proverbs, that's not the only two examples. There are numerous that come up in terms of interaction and meeting needs. And when the fool or the wicked are shown to be those that are callous toward needs that are known. In the law, there are numerous examples of how God provided for those who would be dependent on others to receive what they need. One of the most powerful examples to me has always been the gleaners. God's provision that when you reap the harvest, don't go back and pick up what was left, but instead leave it for those who need it. Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22. The alien, the orphan, the widow in that verse are those to whom good is due. And God prescribes to the people of Israel and says, don't go back and take what you leave, that's actually theirs by my order. So really interesting to see how God provided for them and that in that example an application of this wisdom to withhold that which was due them by God's law would, it would be what is talking about here in the proverb, to withhold good from them, to go back and really get down and pick up all the leftover produce or whatever you're, you're reaping instead of leaving it for the orphan, the widow as, as God prescribed. In the New Testament, familiar verses, countless places, First John 3, whether or not the love of God is in us is reflected in how we care for the needs of the brethren. Basically, through the lens of Scripture, those who were stingy and reluctant to do good are called wicked and foolish. Those who are stingy and reluctant to do good when it is in their power to do it when God has presented situations are shown as wicked and foolish. Job, in two examples in Job, which were really interesting, Job chapter 22. In Job chapter 22, you have the situation one of Job's friends that's in the middle of accusing Job of wickedness and sin, not so helpfully, so wrong accusation. But listen to his portrayal of his supposed, the supposed wickedness that he saw in Job. Is not your wickedness great, Job 22, five, and your iniquities without end? For you have taken the pledges of your brothers without cause and stripped men naked. Verse seven, to the weary you have given no water to drink, and from the hungry you have withheld bread. But the earth belongs to the mighty man, the honorable man dwells in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the orphans has been crushed. Interesting, when, when this gentleman is confronting Job and saying, no, 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 I know you're wicked. What are the examples of wickedness that he lays out? It's what Solomon's talking about in Proverbs 3. Withholding good from those to whom it is due. Not giving something to somebody, in this case, that was in Job's power to do it. Now that was a false accusation. Later, from the positive perspective, Job defending himself, defending his righteousness. Of all the things that we could say to exemplify our righteousness, I confess that I would not think first to my care for those in need. That would not be one of the first examples that I would give to say, look, this is an example of God's wisdom in my life. This is an example of my righteousness, but Job, that's one of the examples that he gives. He says this, have the men of my tent not said, who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat? The idea, Job says, look, haven't they said, look, there's not anybody who could say that they haven't eaten from my table. That's the idea, Job says, I've been generous with what I have. He says, the alien is not lodged outside, for I have opened my doors. To the traveler it's really interesting when job defends his righteousness these categories of relational good are what he uses to say no, no no look i've been righteous look at what i've done in my life wisdom is generous it's caring it meets needs wicked are those who neglect those in need Now it's important that we say the one to whom good is owed in this verse, we're to hear this verse, the do not side of things, okay? You and I reading this, we're to hear Solomon saying, don't do this, all right? Don't be tempted to say that the one to whom good is owed, I'm in that category, okay? I'm I'm gonna become a creditor for those who owe me good and listen to these verses and be thinking of everyone else that owes us all the good things that we don't have. That's not the point. We should be hearing this together as the ones on the end of do not. It's too easy to be led into thinking everyone else has more good than we do. We are convinced of that, and since our love language is receiving things, we do that, everyone owes us their time, everyone owes us their affection, everyone owes us their goods and their resources, but the construction of these verses make clear that all of us are to hear this and say, I'm to meet the needs of those to whom I can meet the needs of. I'm to do good to those who need me to do good. I drove down Somerset Drive to get to church tonight. These verses aren't to make me think of all that they have that they owe me. It's to make me think of how I can do good to others who need it, what I can give to others. So the wisdom here applies to all of life. It's not simply just when you're at the plaza and there's panhandlers Okay, there's countless applications of these verses, but it's, it's higher, it's circumstances, it's not a rebuke to those who are wealthy, it's not a, a challenge to those who are poor to go and ask for things, it is a statement of the wisdom principle that reflects God's character that says, be generous, be giving, meet needs, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the path of wisdom. The path of foolishness is stinginess, reluctance to do good. Remember this, abundance by our modern standard is not the prerequisite for doing what these verses call you to do. We can always think of somebody with more than us. The idea that we need to achieve a certain standard of American abundance is not in view, and that shouldn't be a prerequisite. The idea here is if you have food and somebody needs food and you can share it with them and you've been given that opportunity, then do it. If you have a place to live, then you have something to share with somebody who needs shelter. And this isn't only material. That's where our mind always goes, that's where my mind goes, and that's a reality, and that's a challenge, but it's not only material. Good is general, so what about immaterial needs? Probably in our context, the application of these verses that we would be encountered with most frequently would just be doing good by bearing one another's burdens. In the life of the church, life in ministry, walking through trials with a brother or sister in the Lord, offering spiritual encouragement, serving one another doing good to those who need us to do good. Some clarifications, some clarifications. These verses are a clear call for each of us to love, to love others, to love others as we love ourselves. But in our day and age, especially with some of the causes that are very prevalent right now, don't confuse these verses with a call for the mission of the church to be directed at the welfare of our society. Human flourishing, things like that, external renewal. The mission of the church is the salvation of souls, the Great Commission. These verses are a call for each of us to love others in all the ways and shapes and forms that that takes, and that includes those outside the church. That's different than saying, ah, see, Proverbs tells us The mission of the church is care for this people group. That would be a misapplication of this verse. Hear this for yourself first. Love one another. Love others. Love your neighbor. What's in view here again is specific relational contact. One of the things I was thinking through this, do we we see the difference between the relational good that's communicated in these verses, the difference between that and putting a penny in the collection box at McDonald's. I'm not making light of putting your spare change in the collection box. I'm saying there's a clear distinction between relational good, between you doing good to those who you're actually in contact with in a relationship, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, and general isolated support of a cause. And so I just wanna make that distinction. These verses are calling us to live wisely in our relationships. Not just as some sort of like broad general call to throw your spare change in the bucket and then check this off the list. There's contact here. There's life. There are people that are difficult to interact with and difficult to love and difficult to support and difficult to be generous toward. That's what's in view. And your wisdom is demonstrated by how you handle that interaction. In other words, God is more concerned that we care as Christians for needy souls than he's worried about us supporting in general cause. Are you caring for those in need? I say, look, again, I keep saying this. I wanna read two verses for clarification. We could be here all night for application, and I, I just wanna point you two directions. Second Thessalonians chapter three. These are clarifications, boundaries. God's word gives us boundaries that help us know how to apply these more general principle of doing good to those in need, and I just wanna read a couple of them for you before we move on. 2 Thessalonians chapter three, verses six through 12. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. That's one example of others in the New Testament that shape and guide our application of these wisdom principles. Do good to those to whom good is owed when it's in your power to do it. Does that mean that every open hand that you ever see in your life, you must put something in in order to obey that verse? Say no. And the verses we just read are just an example And again, there's no way we can exhaustively give you an always and a never for every situation. The principle stands, do good to your neighbors. Love them sacrificially. But then we see in Scripture where there's guidance. 1 Timothy 5.8 says that somebody who won't take care of their own family is worse than an unbeliever. Right after that, you see clarifications for, in the first century church, how to care for widows and which classification of widows that were in need should be cared for by the church and others that shouldn't. And so even Paul was applying these wisdom principles. Not everyone was treated with the exact same priority. Galatians 6.10 says, do good, let us do good to all people and especially those who belong to the family of faith. So there's priority even at times in scripture. So a lot of certain specific examples for how you can apply these verses but we can 't miss the fact that it 's important to God, extremely important to God, that we love other people, that we love our neighbors, that we care for them your Your wisdom is revealed by whether or not you care for other people regardless of your life station don 't be stingy, be generous don 't be reluctant be ready to do good a little bit quicker, the third and fourth prohibitions, and there 's a shift here for to sins of commission, actions that are actually harmful to others. And the third prohibition comes to us in verse 29. And it's don't be malicious. Don't be malicious. Verse 29, do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. This brings to mind the idea when it says do not devise. It's the term for plow. Same word, Imagery is cultivating evil plans against others. It's devising, scheming, thinking how you could harm someone else. It's malevolence. Proverbs 6.14, it's one of the things that marks a worthless person. Proverbs 6.18, it's one of the things that God hates. Somebody who devises wickedness who devises and schemes about how to harm others. There's examples of this in the Old Testament. They're striking. Think of Haman in Esther and Mordecai and his scheming of evil to perpetrate against Mordecai. That's just one example. You think of Naboth's vineyard and the unrighteousness that was perpetrated against him. There are schemes involved here. It's the idea. Those who think, who lay in their beds, as it says in Uh, Micah or Malachi and they they think of how they can perpetrate evil against their neighbors What's the circumstance? Your neighbor trusts you That's the circumstance in verse 29 while he lives securely beside you It's the picture of one who is unsuspecting They have every reason to trust you their well-being depends on your trustworthiness and in this example, the sin is, while they're over there trusting you, unsuspecting, you're coming up with ways to harm them. And in some ways, this verse is difficult to imagine application. I mean, I, I assume you're thinking that a little bit. I, malicious? How, I mean, am, am I laying in bed at night thinking how I can inflict evil on my neighbor? Hopefully not. Probably not exactly in that way, but I think by extension we need to be aware there's some ways that that are connected to this. I think this informs the fact you wish harm on others. Uh, This is purely hypothetical. Have you ever wished something bad to happen to somebody who goes flying by you on the highway, cuts you off, does something that puts your car in jeopardy? Again, speaking hypothetically, but maybe, perhaps, you could imagine Thinking of harmful things that might occur to that vehicle or some sort of something to, to get them back, wishing harm on others? Or what about taking pleasure in the misfortune of others? I think that's connected. That's not the same thing as laying in bed and devising evil, but it's, real, it's related. Maliciousness, taking pleasure in harm for others. It's connected to coveting, what About sexual sin. Being willing to take something that belongs to someone else. Scheming, ways of devising and perpetrating evil in a relationship that's illicit, that's malicious. God's people should be the most trustworthy people on earth. Christ's people should be the most trustworthy people on earth. Our neighbors, those who we come into contact with, should have the privilege of security because they live next to a Christian. They should have the privilege of knowing that we're not out to get them, that we're not devising ways to harm them, that we want their good. Don't be malicious, be trustworthy. Fourth prohibition, don't be quarrelsome. Don't be quarrelsome, verse 30. Do not contend with a man without cause, if he has done you no harm. Contend here. Don't contend. Don't quarrel. Don't brawl. Don't stir up strife. Don't be a brawler. Don't spoil for a fight, for a quarrel with those who you come into contact with. This can be understood and applied in a a legal sense as in a lawsuit There were prohibitions in the law of God against bringing lawsuits against your neighbor when the the neighbor has not done anything. That could be implied here in verse 30. If he's done you, no harm. Don't bring a frivolous lawsuit. Don't be litigious. Don't be looking for somebody that you can sue. But broader, it simply refers to contention. Contention, just being a person who wants to contend with those who are around you. That's an example of foolishness. Don't contend, don't be one who brings quarrel and strife into relationships. And the circumstance here again is one who, who's not done, done you any harm. There's no reason for contention. In the legal sense, there's no reason for a claim. There's no reason to bring a suit, a case, a cause. This would involve, uh, if it, it is understood in the legal sense, bearing false witness against somebody, harming your neighbor's reputation and their livelihood frivolously. In the legal setting, there's no cause for harm. But really, it just speaks to the fact that there's no reason for you to quarrel. There's no reason for you to defend. There's no reason for you to argue, wrangle, bring strife into the interaction. Don't be quarrelsome with others. We mentioned earlier the digital world. Many of us might be tempted to write things in an email, put things in a text message, write things on a, post, write things in the comment section on a blog, tweet something, comment back on something that somebody's tweeted that we would never leave our house, go to our next door neighbor, knock on the door, have them come out and say, I've got something I wanna tell you, and then let them have it. But we don't have any inhibition about hammering something out electronically, shooting it off and letting them deal with it. That's quarrelsome. That's what's in view here. We have digital neighbors today. We have online neighbors. We have people that we will be in contact with that we may never meet, may never know their name. We only know their little moniker on their uh, Twitter, but you can interact with them in our world today. Are you quarrelsome? Are you contentious? Do you wanna argue about everything? For no reason. They've said something you don't like, so you're gonna let them know you don't like it. That's being quarrelsome. That's being contentious. Solomon says, don't do that. Wisdom in relationships does not look like quarreling. If you are quarrelsome in that way, you reveal that you lack wisdom. Be a peacemaker. That's the point. Don't be quarrelsome, be a peacemaker. Since it says if he's done you no harm, we may be thinking, what if, though? What if he has caused us harm? And for that, God in his kindness has given us Romans 12, 15 through 21. says this. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Consider what is good before all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Do not avenge yourselves dear friends, but give place to God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God has called his people to be peacemakers, not quarrelsome. And even went on the receiving end of harm, were to repay evil with good, were to be peacemakers, not to seek to be right at the expense of seeking to be righteous. What does wisdom look like in relationships? Looks like generosity, not being stingy. It looks like readiness to do good to those whom we encounter when it's in our power to do good. It looks like being trustworthy not seeking the harm of anyone, not coming up with ways to harm, not helping people harm others, but being trustworthy so that there's security. And it looks like being a peacemaker, not being quarrelsome, not being contentious. This is one of those texts in scripture that's really easy to understand and really difficult to apply. And not difficult because we don't know how, but difficult because our hearts press against it as we were, as I was studying this text this week, I was just impressed over and over again by the fact that love for others, and this sounds, oh, it sounds foolish for me to say, it's like obviously, but really just to swim in it for a little while. Love for others is a supreme issue in the mind of God. Absolutely supreme. Matthew 22, 35 through 39, a lawyer asked Jesus a question testing him. Teacher which is the great commandment in the law. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. That is an astonishing statement. Loving God and loving others summarizes everything. The law and the prophets. How important is loving our neighbors as ourselves? We hear that, we say that, that's the golden rule, and I'll confess, as I was studying this week, I thought, I have not thought about that enough. Jesus makes that an absolutely heavy, heavy command, serious, sobering command. When he equates it, With the greatest commandment. And then he says, everything, the law and prophets. Those two love God, love others. The same way we desire our personal needs to be met, we're to desire that others' needs will be met. With the same vigor, and want and work that we have for our own desires, we should actually apply that same work and want and vigor for the desires of others. That's what it means to love others as you love yourself. I was thinking about that as we sang the song. Lord, I need you. None of us can do this apart from the grace of God. We absolutely cannot love sacrificially like this and care for others in this wise way that Solomon is calling us to apart from God's grace and God's work in our life. But it's important to remember, and Solomon makes that clear, and the fact that it's in the Proverbs shows us this. There is no room for a worldview that believes that God is most concerned about what we believe in quiet, and that the way we treat and interact with others is of secondary tertiary importance. We cannot have a worldview that thinks that. Wisdom demands that we care and love others in the church, in the world, in your family. We can think that we have deep, complicated theology, that we and God are the dynamic duo, but if we treat people like dirt, our theology is deficient. We're not wise, we couldn't claim wisdom if that was the case. God is generous. God is full of kindness and mercy, and God's people are to reflect that in the way that they interact with others. And Solomon says, that demonstrates how wise you are. How you interact with others.